Hello, thanks for listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. This is Adam Rosen, your host. I'm a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement. In these episodes, I'm going to share with you a lot of my tips and tricks and review classic articles and current implant designs. Thanks for tuning in and on with the show. Hello and welcome back. This is Adam Rosen. You're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. And again, on this season, season three, I'm talking about orthopedic issues that are specific for the non-orthopedic doctor. Um, And in today's episode, I want to talk about hip fractures. So although this information is important for primary care doctors in the outpatient setting, because your patients may fall and break their hip and be admitted to the hospital, uh, this is definitely geared more for the resident um, intern and hospitalist that are taking care of these patients in the hospital. So when I talk about hip fracture and hip pra- fracture admissions, I'm talking specifically in this episode about elderly patients. We're not talking about the young trauma victim. victim. And these are, by definition, fragility fractures. These are patients falling from a standing height and sustaining a hip fracture. Just understand that all of these patients are high risk. Commonly, you know, doctors um, will try to you know, classify and stratify, you know, low risk. But anytime that somebody's coming in with a hip fracture, they're essentially high risk. You know, this is an organ system failure. So they've come in with an organ system, their bone system that has broken, it has failed. You know, then you add most of these elderly patients, you know, they have kidney disease, they have heart disease, they have endocrine disorders, they have maybe anemia, they have neurologic disorders. You know, then we're getting into the realm of multi-system organ failure. So we have to understand that any of these patients coming into the hospital is by nef- definition high risk. And I'm very upfront, you know, with all of my patients, especially when I'm talking to them about risks of any procedure. And, you know, I'm, I always don't like to, but I always talk to patients and their family and, and I'm very specific once I go through all the risks of, you know, infections and blood clots and what have you, but specifically that when someone is admitted to the hospital in America, and these numbers do change a little bit, but you know, on average, most studies are around this number, about 5% of people will die in the hospital when they're admitted with a hip fracture. They may not leave the hospital. And 25% of people may die in the first year following a hip fracture admission. And again, it's rarely from the bone. You know, people don't have a hip fracture and, you know, you don't hear about the hip getting infected and then the infection causing death, although it can happen. You know, typically it's they have the hip fracture, they're in the hospital, then they have a stroke or a heart attack or an aspiration pneumonia, or they go into kidney failure. And throughout that entire year following the hip fracture, even if they're discharged from the hospital, it's not uncommon for these patients to have other medical conditions and require repeat hospitalization. So it's a scary number for people to hear, but I always want my patients to understand because sometimes... You know, they think, oh, you know, Mary was admitted with a stroke. That's a big deal. Or John was admitted with a heart attack. That's a big deal. And they don't think of a broken bone as such a big deal, but it fits in the same category. So they have to understand that up front. Now, the next thing is obviously if they're admitted, for the most part, 99% of the time, they're going to have surgery. Although non-surgical treatment is an option for a hip fracture, it is rarely the treatment of choice. You know, there are some patients who refuse surgery. Um... There are some patients who are not ambulatory and so sick that the risk of surgery is too great. Um, but for the most part, in our country, you know, most people will operate on hip fractures 
uh, for many reasons, and mainly just to fix the bone, but to get patients up and moving quicker. So we're looking for the medical team to essentially just okay them for surgery. You know, is there any major contraindication to proceeding? You know, luckily over the past decade or so, the timing to surgery from the time of admission has significantly decreased because we know that beyond 72 hours, the risks of complications go up significantly. So I do remember where, you know, a patient would come in and, you know, the medicine team would see them and it was just common. Like you would do every test in the world. We check labs every day. They get an echo, they get an EKG, you know, they get a stress test, they get, you know, ultrasound of their kidney. I mean, what have you, chest x-rays, CAT scans, you know, CTs of their head. It was like any test that you could do to basically assess the whole patient. And at the end of 72 hours, basically went, okay, patient's good for surgery. They're at high risk. So we know they're high risk. So obviously we're going to do labs. Is there any major issue with the labs, kidney function, um, things that we can fix with fluids? Are they severely anemic? You know, do they need a blood transfusion prior to surgery? You know, obviously checking an EKG. You know, did they have an MI from the fall of the trauma? Is that the reason that they fell? Do they need an echo? You know, do they have a murmur? Um, do they have some underlying heart or valvular disease? You know, the other tests are important if they can cause a diagnosis, which then leads to an intervention, which then lowers their risk. But you don't want to do a test that doesn't result in anything and just delays care. You know, because occasionally I've actually had patients where, you know, they were admitted with a heart attack and a hip fracture. You know, and I remember one vividly where I got called because the patient came through the ER to the cath lab and I actually met the patient in the cath lab and they actually stented them and we wheeled them from the cath lab to the operating room to fix their hip so that they can then start them on antiplatelet therapy after that. That's rare. You know, luckily it's not something that happens on a regular basis, but obviously if someone's having a heart attack, you know, treat the heart attack, that's a cath, that's an intervention, that's a treatment. Um, and then we worry about, you know, the, the hip fracture surgery after that. Um, the other important thing that, you know, I make sure all my patients understand is that most patients lose a function grade. So, so what does that mean? Well, if a patient was a normal everyday ambulator in the community and they fell and they broke their hip, you know, those patients have to understand that many of those patients for the rest of their life will use a cane. And if somebody was already walking on a cane for whatever reason and they fall and they break their hip, it is not uncommon for that patient to be on a walker for the rest of their life. And if a patient was already on a walker and then fell, that patient commonly will be wheelchair bound for the rest of their life. So patients do have to understand that, you know, just because they have a hip fracture, we can fix the bone, but they may never get back to normal. Sometimes, even if the bone heals, there was muscle damage and the trauma from the fall that injured that stuff that we can't necessarily fix. You know, sometimes the whole process of the fall, the injury, the surgery, if they were a little deconditioned to begin with, they never gained back full strength. For a lot of patients, I find it's actually a confidence thing. There's another fear of falling. So they're comfortable and they move better with that walker around them because they're so afraid of falling and going through this process again. Now, when the patient comes in, depending on where you're at in the medical field, um, the patient may have been seen by an ER doc. The patient had an x-ray. The x-ray was read by a radiologist. What I would recommend for all hospitalists, residents, interns is when you do your assessment and plan and you go through their diabetes and their kidney disease and their heart issues, just classify it as a hip fracture. 
because more often than not, we see that the ER doctor describes the fracture wrong, or the radiologist may describe the fracture wrong. And as the hospitalist, you probably don't look at the x-ray. Um, you look at the report, and now you essentially propagate a mistake in the medical record. And it's important, you know, because the type of fracture really dictates how we treat them. So, you know, if there's this propagation of the wrong terminology or the wrong fracture comp classification, you know, it just looks bad in the medical record and, you know, it could lead to errors down the road. So I would just recommend that if you admit somebody, admit them with a right hip fracture or a left hip fracture. Make your life simple. You don't have to go into it. It's our job to deal with the minutia of what is it, you know, and for educational purposes. So briefly, what we're looking at is you can have what's called a femoral neck fracture. So again, the femoral neck is the portion of the bone below the head, but above the intertrochanteric region. And there's different areas and different angles of those fractures that we get into because it helps dictate the treatment. You know, if they're incomplete, non-displaced, those are the ones that typically we can pin, what's called percutaneous pinning, where we'll put usually a few screws to hold the bone in place and allow it to heal. That comes with its own risks. But if a femoral neck fracture is displaced, um, then we'll typically do an arthroplasty, which is either a partial hip replacement, what's called a hemiarthroplasty, where we're replacing the thigh bone portion with a stem and then a, a metal ball on top of that and leaving their native cup or acetabulum. Um, or in certain individuals, we will, if they have a displaced femoral neck fracture, do a hip replacement for the fracture because there is plenty of studies and data showing that actually hip replacement patients in the ambulatory patient, you know, these are not sick elderly patients on a walker already, but a hip replacement actually does better. Um, there are some risks involved with it, but overall, if you know they're a normal everyday ambulator in the community, they may do better in the long term with a total hip replacement. Now, lower down is the intertrochanteric region. And depending on what kind of intertrochanteric hip fracture it is, we may use a plate called a dynamic hip screw plate um, or a rod called an intramedullary hip screw device or cephalomedullary nail. Usually one is for stable and one's for unstable, but they can sometimes be used interchangeably depending on the patient um, and the anatomy. And then a little bit lower down, we have what's called the subtrochanteric region. These are typically treated with rods. And also the thing that we're seeing more commonly now are what's called periprosthetic fractures. So these are people that already had a hip replacement and now fell and broke the hip around the hip replacement. And that leads a whole nother issue of complications because is the implant stable? Can we fix the bone? Is the implant not stable? Do we have to fix the bone and revise the hip replacement all at the same time? So that's the overview. The simplicity for you is just describe it as a right or left hip fracture and let us work on the minutia of the type of fracture and how we would treat it. Um, because sometimes what happens is, you know, people sometimes put in the, the fracture and they assume the treatment and that may be totally different than what we would plan based on the injury and based on the x-ray. Okay, so let's jump now into medications. So blood thinners, is the patient on a blood thinner for whatever reason? You know, whether or not do they have a history of DVT? Do they have a DVT, a PE? Do they have heart disease? Do they have atrial fibrillation? You know, so why are they on a blood thinner? Um, and is it safe that we hold it? And if so, how long do we need to hold it before they have surgery? Again, that depends. So that you should discuss with the surgeon because certain blood thinners and certain surgeries, you know, we may be okay if they took it yesterday and have surgery today. 
you know, based on the individual and the medication and the surgery that would be required, we may want a couple day window. You know, are they on warfarin? Do they need vitamin K? You know, do they need FFP available? So those are things that will be very dependent on the patient. Um, But if they're on a blood thinner, hold it if there's not a strong reason to continue it and then get involved with your surgeon and devise a plan which would be best for the patient. Now, what about blood loss? So femur fractures, wherever it is, will bleed a lot. And the delay to surgery will result in a progressive anemia from the injury. Now, if they were anemic to begin with, this just makes the system worse because now they're progressively more anemic. I currently don't know what the right answer is. You know, we commonly use for a lot of our joint replacements, it's become a gold standard in the world, tranexamic acid. And it's typically a low dose, just a gram. On occasion, I've actually given it to patients on admission with hip fractures because they typically will lose blood over that, you know, 24-hour window until they get to the operating room. And then they bleed during surgery. It increases the risk of the need for transfusion. So I started giving patients on admission TXA and found that actually it really stabilized the blood loss and they were not losing the gram or two or three that I was typically seeing. I don't have a strong study to back that up, but I was pleasantly surprised not too long ago to see a little pilot study that somebody did at another hospital on that very same topic, you know, TXA on admission at the ER. And they concluded that they didn't have a large enough sample size to say if it was a good idea or not, but it's definitely something to consider. Um, and if someone's looking for an idea or a study at a large institution, it would be a great study to do to prove whether or not TXA on admission hip fractures was helpful to uh, prevent the need for transfusion. We'll be back after a quick break. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Drs. Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. But after surgery, you know, we are going to see blood loss or during surgery and you have to decide whether or not we need blood available. Now, when patients are admitted, um, these typically do hurt, but what I found is the older generation tends to have a pretty high pain threshold and they usually do quite well. And we know that also in that older generation, they're a lot more sensitive to narcotics. So before you rush into giving morphine and Dilaudid and Percocet, start with acetaminophen. You know, scheduled acetaminophen, whether or not it's IV or PO, um, can be a very effective drug for these kinds of injuries. And it prevents the need for the heavy-duty narcotics and opioids, which can then lead to the confusion and delirium and constipation, you know, that we see. So you can always add stuff in later, but start with the lower-risk medications like acetaminophen, and I'll typically put people on, if they don't have a risk factor for it, 1,000 milligrams orally, um, Q8. You know, and if there's some reason to use the IV, you know, we'll use the IV, um, but typically we'll just use the orals and then continue on that and then only add narcotics on top of that. Now, what about venothromboembolic disease? Well, on admission, they're all going to get mechanical devices applied. Now, post-op really depends. 
and it depends on the patient. You know, what are the risk factors? Um, were they previously on a blood thinner? Did they go back on that blood thinner or a different blood thinner? Um, do they have higher risks? Do they go on aspirin or some other chemical prophylaxis? Um, all of those things are going to be dependent on the patient, the fracture, the injury, the risk factors, and other associated comorbidities. But that, you know, should be discussed with the surgical team. And every hospital is going to be different. You know, we have a pretty good setup where the orthopedic team will take care of the antibiotics, will take care of the um, DVT prophylaxis, we'll take care of physical therapy and weight-bearing status, we take care of pain management, you know, where the medicine team is involved with taking care of sugar, hypertension, kidney disease, um, other things like that. Now, disposition, and it's really important because, you know, I see this mistake made a lot as patients come in, you know, they see the house staff and, oh, okay, we're going to say it for the nursing home. Not all patients need to go to a nursing home just because they have a hip fracture. And when I tell people this, they're actually surprised. Like, what do you mean? They can go home? Yes, they can go home. So if you fall and you break your hip and you have a safe home environment, you have family member, spouse that can help you, and you're ambulatory and you can walk and you clear therapy, there's no special wound care, there's no special IV treatment, go home. You know, we see so many issues that occur when people go to nursing homes. Now, some do go to nursing homes, you know, if they're not progressing with physical therapy or there's some other issue or medical issue, they may need to go to a nursing home. But just understand that, Patients shouldn't be told on admission that because they fell and broke their hip, they have to go to a nursing home. They can go home. You know, I sometimes see patients almost in tears when I go to see them because their biggest fear is they have to go to a nursing home, you know, and they have a friend that got sick in a nursing home or someone that died at a nursing home. And, and I tell them, you don't have to go. And all of a sudden, this huge smile breaks out. You know, it's, it's an option if they need that level of care, but it is not a necessity. Now, as an outpatient, it is really important that if someone falls and has a fragility fracture, that they get a full and complete osteoporosis workup and treatment. A lot of times we'll do the vitamin D in the hospital and right away know, you know, are they low or deficient? Do we need to supplement? That's something easy that we can start right away, but they do need an outpatient bone density test um, and then treatment if indicated because a lot of institutions have done great jobs at, you know, from a financial aspect, you know, they reduce costs, but from a patient safety and patient care aspect, if you can prevent a second fragility fracture, you know, you have saved the patient so much, um, so much risk, so much worry, so much anxiety, and risk of death and other injury and surgery. You know, we hate to see someone fall, break their hip, no workups indicated, or no workups rather done. Six months later, we get a phone call, they fall and they break their other hip. Um, so we have a pretty good protocol in place where you know we'll typically refer people um, to rheumatology where they'll initiate the bone density test and initiate treatment if indicated. But you wanna make sure that these patients um, get referred back to their primary. And if you don't have an osteoporosis protocol or pathway set up at your institution, consider one, but you wanna make sure that that doesn't fall through the cracks. Now, other things as far as the, the post-op aspects is that, and it is important, I think, for, for all surgeries, um, you know, definitely you should be familiar with the chest guidelines. You know, understand chest guidelines and what their recommendations for and against are, um, but there is no need for a preoperative ultrasound to rule out a DVT on admission. And there is no indication. Some nursing homes used to like require this, you know, need a ultrasound prior to transfer from the hospital to the nursing home. They were simply afraid that if they got a DVT, they were going to get financially dinged. So they wanted to prove it occurred in the hospital, not at the nursing home. But there is no indication for a routine ultrasound unless you have a specific reason, pain, swelling, you know, there's some clinical finding that makes you suspicious. And again, and it may alter the care. You know, I always tell people that, 
you know, if somebody has pain in their calf, but they're on, say, Xarelto or Eliquis, and we had to put them back at a higher dose for their heart disease, even if they have a DVT, they're on chronic lifelong anticoagulation, it doesn't necessarily change the treatment. So why necessarily do the test? It's different if the test being positive results in a change in treatment. You know, and it may be helpful if someone's at risk of post-thrombotic syndrome, but don't order routine ultrasounds in asymptomatic individuals. The other important thing, hip fracture patients and pretty much all surgical patients, if somebody has post-op tachycardia and low oxygen saturation and you suspect a CT or suspect a PE, do not order a D-dimer. They just had surgery. It's going to be positive. It doesn't help you. It's an expensive test that gives you no additional information. You know, if they have a PE, talk to your surgeon. Is there a risk for anticoagulation? Anticoagulate them and then send them for a CT or if you can't do that, a VQ scan and then indicate treatment if indicated um, and necessary. But, you know, I see people, post-op patients order a D-dimer and it's always going to be positive. They just had surgery. They were bleeding. They are clotting. So it's not help. It's helpful in the patient walking off the street. Now, postoperative anemia is normal. So normal postoperative anemia. Do not order a CAT scan of the hip to look for bleeding at 2 o'clock in the morning because you checked the hemoglobin and realized it was low. Guaranteed, they had surgery on their hip, they're going to be bleeding. Um, now, if there's no pulses in the leg, that's a whole different story. You know, Then we have to worry about arterial injury. But just because they're anemic following surgery, you don't have to go looking for the hematoma, which you know is going to be there. And if they're asymptomatic, just follow it and watch it. It's different if someone's actively bleeding through the wound, it's saturating the dressings. Then we have to worry about, is there active vascular bleeding? Get your surgeon involved. They may have to get radiology involved or vascular surgery involved. Again, but those issues are rare. And if they're symptomatic, you know, treat them with a blood transfusion Postoperative anemia is a normal occurrence following surgery, but we worry about it when it's symptomatic. And you worry about it more so in cardiac disease patients or patients where even a lower blood count may put them at greater risk. So be aware of it. The other important thing to understand is patients get a leukocytosis and a stress response and a shift with their white blood cells after surgery. So, you know, routinely, if I'm looking at postoperative H&Hs, I'm getting an H&H, a hemoglobin and hematocrit. You know, one, it's cheaper. I'm not suspecting infection. If they're not on anoxaparin, I'm not worried about low platelets. If their platelets were normal ahead of time. Um, and I'm looking at their hemoglobin and hematocrit and deciding based on that and their symptoms, does this person need a transfusion? But if you order a CBC and their white count is elevated, that can be a normal response after surgery. So do not pan culture these patients. We see a ton of patients have a little high white blood cell count, which is, again, can be a normal finding after surgery, and then they wind up getting a chest x-ray and blood cultures and UAs, and you know it's a whole huge workup that almost yields nothing 99.9% of the time. But if the patient has other findings like redness, increasing pain, um, drainage, you know that's a different story. So you know keep all those in mind, but don't knee jerk the reaction in a surgical patient like you would in a patient you know coming in without surgery and sepsis or coming in from the outside world following an airplane ride and shortness of breath, tachycardia, and low oxygen saturations. They're different individuals, so the workup is different for them. Um, but this, I hope, um, is just kind of a discussion I have, you know, every so often with, you know, house staff when they're new. And, you know, I think it 
just answers a lot of questions that some people may have because I think the orthopedic view of the hip fracture patient and what we're looking for may be a little different than what you know the hospitalist may have been taught or is thinking or learned in school or in training. Um, I find some hospitalists are great and you know they may have come from a place that was a big orthopedic institution and protocols are set up in place and they kind of have this nailed and dialed. You know, other people aren't as aware. They're not as familiar depending on where you trained or where you came from or what, you know, your level of orthopedic patient um, is within your hospital. The biggest thing I think, which a lot of times I find, you know, the residents are really happy is the classifications. Don't worry about them. Right hip fracture, left hip fracture. Keep it simple. Um, We'll take care of the rest, but have a plan in place, you know, talk to your patients, you know, work up and make sure that they're um, safe as safe can be for surgery. But again, they're all high risk. Um, figure out um, what the patient will be doing for discharge based on their response after surgery and physical therapy. Don't assume that they all have to go to a nursing facility. And once these patients get discharged, be in communication with their outpatient provider to make sure that they get the appropriate osteoporosis workup and treatment if indicated to potentially prevent another fragility fracture in the near future. And again, um, if you have other topics, I'm going to start going through you know a few more of these for the orthopedic information for the non-orthopedic provider. You know, please shoot me a line, uh, Twitter, email. Um, let me know. I'm happy to kind of add different topics. I hope you've enjoyed this information. Um, if you have other uh, colleagues that you work with um, in your training program or within your hospital that you think would enjoy and benefit from this information, please share a link with them. Um, if you can and you have the time, uh, leave a review. So those reviews that really help other people like you find this podcast and find the information. And until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Adam Rosen. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast, but season three, which is geared for the non-orthopedic um, provider. And until next time, stay safe. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.